our perspective changes everything. It's amazing how it can radically impact our approach to life. Just thinking of this picture here, there's two different perspectives, isn't there? One's boat, one's land, and they're both happy to see each other. Well, I just wondered, did they swap? Um, just back this down a bit in front of house. Yeah, just slide it down. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what about this picture? There's four. No, there's three. No, there's four. Actually, is there one? I don't know. That's your perspective, isn't it? What about this as far as perspective goes, depending on what you paint? Just think about your perspective also of, of have to versus want to. You know, oh, I have to work out versus I want to work out. Oh, I have to read my Bible. That's what good Christians do, isn't it? Versus I want to read my Bible. I have to go to church. I want to go to church. I have to clean my room. <laughs> I want to live in a nice, neat, tidy space. You know, sometimes making the simple change in our perspective as we think about things in our lives can make a huge impact. And, and, and when we approach our own circumstances, just think about the difference in perspective between fear and anticipation. Because we can often approach things, particularly when they're new, with a perspective, and we're probably either going to naturally be fearful or anticipatory. Let's take AI, for example. Chat GPT has been a massive thing this year. I'm not sure if you've come across it yet. But AI is something we could approach with fear. It could be used for evil. It could take people's jobs. It could spread disinformation. It could make people dumber. We could end up living transformers. No, no what is it? Um, what's that Arnold Schwarzenegger one? Not, not transformers. Terminator, that's the one. Terminator, thank you. Start with T. Um, but we could approach it um, with fear. You know, AI could make people dumber the more computers do for us. Um, we could approach it with fear or we could approach it with anticipation. What amazing things could people achieve if AI took care of some of the grunt work, freeing us up to be creative as we're designed to be as humans so that we can do what we were designed to do, or how AI could be a tool we can use to bring positive good and change. You know, I recently read an article where a pastor was puzzling over AI. And he, was, uh, he asked ChatGPT, which is like a, an AI chatbot, what the Christian gospel was. So he asked ChatGPT, what is the Christian gospel? And it gave one of the clearest presentations of the gospel I've ever come across. It was spot on. Many people are asking these AIs so many questions. What a wonderful thing to find out that even an AI chatbot knows the gospel and will present it plainly and in truth. I was so surprised. You know the photos I showed you earlier, those three photos? I got them off the source of all things wonderful, didn't I? The internet. 
Um, and they were terrible quality. They were so blurry, you've got no idea. So I ran them through an AI image blur remover tool. It took three seconds, and we ended up from something that you could hardly even tell what it was to a nice, clear, crisp picture. It went from like 128 pixels to thousands in three seconds, and it was amazing. Now, people used to spend hours on Photoshop doing that work, which now AI does with a click of a button. You know, we can live in fear or in anticipation of the good that will come. Just think of all those old photographs that you've got of loved ones of generations gone past, which are in terrible quality. You can now just scan them in and AI just fixes them like that. It's amazing. We can live in fear or in anticipation. Our perspective is so important when it comes to how we think and how we interact with our world. If we lose sight of what the Bible teaches and just look at other sources, of course we are more likely to respond with fear and anxiety about our future and the future of our children and their children. But as Christians, we should be looking to the Scriptures to inform our thinking and to impact our living. And that's what Peter focuses on in chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, grab them out, be it in paper version, on a phone. If you want a paper version, we have some up the back. Um, get it out, head to Second Peter chapter 3, as Peter rounds out his book with a special focus on how we should live in light of Christ's return. And so my first point today is that scoffers challenge the truth of Scripture concerning the coming of the Lord. And this is from verses 1 through 7, which I will read now if you'd like to follow along with me. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter in verses 1 and 2 gives us the purpose of his writing, to be stirred up and to be reminded of the truth of Scripture. The Scriptures are our highest authority. They are our primary source of God's wisdom and revelation to us. And Peter places the apostles' teaching on par with the Old Testament in its authority. He then addresses the faithful Christians who had not followed the false teachers. He encourages them to continue in the sound doctrine and teaching, to continue to stay true to the apostles' teaching, and to ignore the false teachers who he calls scoffers. You see, scoffers have always been there and they will always be around. 
Scoffers scoff at the revelation of God in Scripture. They do not believe its authority, its accuracy, or its relevance or truth. Peter mentions specifically that they don't believe in the prophecy in Scripture concerning Christ's return and the last days. The scoffers believe that they were intellectually superior and showed disdain of scriptural revelation. They believed they knew better than what was revealed in the Bible, but that led them to immoral conduct. And we see this still happening today. Scoffers will scoff. The sad reality is that so many people, even some who profess to be Christians, do not recognise the authority of Scripture and think they know best. They look to every other source for authority, yet not the Word of God. It is clear, the Scriptures are the highest authority. That is the perspective that we should have when we approach our faith and our life. So what does that look like for us today, practically? How might we apply this to contentious issues of science, where science and the Bible collide? Well, the highest authority is Scripture. So we always go to Scripture first to be informed. And from the pages of Scripture, we then form our worldview. That's the biblical perspective. Then we approach the world. Bible first, then the world. And where the collision of these two seem to be at odds, what do we do then? Nothing different. We go to the Bible first, And from the biblical worldview, we then seek to make sense of the other information and data available to us. I have a Christian friend who has a PhD in geology. And he's a very smart cookie. He used to be in the youth group that I was um, youth pastor of. And I asked him, given his stance, given that he has studied rocks a lot, I asked him what his position was when it came to creation, for example. And the reason it matters is because if you follow the genealogies given to us in the Bible, we see that the earth isn't millions of years old, it's actually a lot younger than that. That, that, that view is called young earth creationist, and it's one view that some Christians hold. And it places the age of the earth at around 7,000 years. Yet a large scientific consensus, geologists included, believe in an old earth, and that view that the world in general is what is concluded as true by our scientific communities. And so I said, how do you, as a P- with a PhD in geology, how do you approach the Bible and science and what everything, all the information that you've studied um, when it comes to the earth and creation? And this was his response. He says, I still say I'm a young earth creationist, as I still believe that's the plainest reading of the Bible and that's my ultimate authority. However, I've certainly softened significantly on the importance of the issue. I take exception to those who might say that all the scientific evidence clearly points to a young earth. The reality is there are significant difficulties reconciling some scientific data with a young earth, but there is also difficulty reconciling some scientific data with an old earth. I think that's just the nature of historic science. I guess over the last few years I've listened to a lot more stuff from Christians and apologists who admire deeply, who hold to an old earth, and I've come to respect that position a lot more than I once did. I still disagree with it based on the above, 
that scripture is my ultimate authority, but I've come to be okay with living with the tension and mystery. What a wise thing for such a young gentleman to have come to in his conclusions. A very wise approach. And exactly what Peter encourages. The Bible is our ultimate authority, but those of the old earth view often look at young earth creationists as loonies, and the young earth creationists are often fairly arrogant in their belief too. Both sides of this one fail to show love and grace to the other sides at times, as one holds firmly onto their scientific conclusions and can tend to explain the Bible creation account away, and the other holds firmly on their biblical convictions and scientific conclusions. And there's scientific evidence that supports both. And there's scientific evidence that contradicts both. So what do we do? Well, on this one, I'm going to give you one piece of advice. The Bible is our ultimate authority. When you observe science portrayed in a way that doesn't agree with the biblical account, what are you going to believe? I mean, it is all forever, it is all after, it's a historic science, which in itself has its failures, as we weren't there to observe it at the time, so we can't say conclusively either way. But if you place anything else above the authority of the Bible, I would caution you, as Peter does. You see, the scoffers of Peter's day didn't believe the prophets when they told of the return of Christ. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They, like much of our Western culture today, were adherents to the philosophy of naturalism, where the only thing that exists is nature, nothing spiritual, and it presumes that the so-called laws of nature are unchanging and have always been unchanging. And here is a plausible explanation of the debate, debate of young earth versus old earth. God may have changed what are considered to be the laws of nature in the past. The world is not like a clock wound up at the beginning and left to run out. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the force that holds the world together as he, and as he created the world, so he sustains it. Which means Jesus is an active participatory agent in the fabric of our world. He didn't just set it up and leave it. He is still active in creation today. But from 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter referred to a denial of supernaturalism and an assertion of uniformitarianism. In particular, the scoffers denied the promise of the Lord Jesus that he would return. They denied Christ's return. They assumed that God does not intervene in our world. They put nature and its so-called laws above the God of nature and revelation. The scoffers had the wrong perspective. Peter goes on from verse 5 to say that the scoffers were purposefully disregarded, they were purposefully disregarding information. He cited two events in the creation of the cosmos that show that things have not always been as they are. God did intervene in the world in the past. When God spoke the universe, it came into existence. God spoke again and the dry land separated from the waters. God used water to form the dry land. And God brought the whole universe into existence by his word and by water. And Peter proceeded to say that he also used both means to destroy it in Noah's day. And he will use two means to destroy it in the future. His word although not water this time, because God said he wouldn't do that, but fire. 
these things would have been known to ordinary Jewish people from their reading of Genesis. And so Peter presents the world in three periods of history, divided by two cataclysms. There was the world before the universal flood, there's the present world, and there is the future world to come. And God spoke creation into existence. As God spoke, the world was destroyed by water. God will speak, and the world and the ungodly will be destroyed at the day of judgment. God has given orders that the present heavens and earth will experience another judgment in the future. Then God will, with his word, destroy them by fire rather than water. This will take place after the great white throne of judgment and before the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. So the world is presently reserved for fire in the sense that this is, is its inevitable destiny. So how does that impact as we live our lives today? If everything here is going to be burnt up in fire, it's going to be destroyed. Well, first of all, we can be certain of Christ's return, number one. And secondly, we should live in the understanding that God is in control of nature, the earth, and everything in it. He spoke and brought it into existence at creation. He spoke and destroyed it by, wi- by water. He will speak and it will all be destroyed on the day of judgment. This is certain. So all those people who say we only have one earth, well, they're true to extent. This earth is the only one that we get. But what they miss and what they will scoff at is that God had or- has already told us that this earth will be destroyed and he will then create a new heaven and a new earth. Just like a caterpillar enters the chrysalis and it all turns into mush and is destroyed into DNA soup inside that chrysalis, right? So our earth will also be destroyed. Yet from that destruction, God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. And let me tell you this, If you think that a butterfly is so much more amazing, spectacular and wonderful than a caterpillar after it has emerged from the chrysalis, just wait for our new earth. I'm looking forward to that. So how do we live in light of this now when it comes to creation, to climate change, to nature? Will we maintain the principles of good stewardship over creation as God has commanded But God has also commanded that we are masters over it and have been told to subdue it, be fruitful and multiply because the scriptures are our ultimate authority. There is a globalist push to depopulate the earth. This is by those who scoff at God and the Bible. The command God gave to be fruitful and multiply has not been rescinded by God. And so we know that it is against the will of God to depopulate the earth because God has actually said the opposite. Anyone who is in favour of depopulation has not read or does not believe the Bible. They are scoffers and do not place the scriptures as their ultimate authority. The same could be said for those who value nature over humanity. God has placed us over all creation. This is God's order. Anyone who usurps that order has not read or does not believe their Bible. They are scoffers and do not place the scripture as their ultimate authority. 
If I have to make a decision and that decision is to save a tree or save a human life or save a, a human life from suffering, then sorry tree. That oversimplifies it, but that is God's order and the principle is sound. Scripture is our ultimate authority. Now, if you don't sit there with me, that's okay. Verses 8 to 10 might speak to you because the Lord's patience determines the timing of his return. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter tells us that God's patience with humanity determines the timing of when he will return because his love and compassion for us. He wants to give as many people as possible, as long as possible, to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and in doing so, believe in the scriptures as authoritative, placing them as their highest authority. Again, Peter reminds his readers to remember what they had learned previously and not to forget it, like the scoffers did. As far as God's faithfulness to his promise is concerned, it doesn't matter if he gave his promise yesterday or a thousand years ago, he still remains faithful and will fulfill every promise. Psalm 90 verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You know, the passage of a thousand years should not lead us to conclude that God will not fulfill what he has promised. The passing of time does not cause God to forget his promises. Peter's point is not that time has no meaning for God, but rather that, that his use of time is such that we cannot confine him to our time schedules. His use of time is extensive so that he may use a thousand years to do what we might feel should be done in a day, as well as intensive, doing in a day what we might feel could only be done in a thousand years. You see where an old earth and a young earth can collide when the scripture says that to God a thousand is one and one is a thousand? We don't know what happened in the past. But this statement does not negate the hope of the imminent return of the Lord either. Peter, like the other New Testament writers, spoke as though his readers would be alive at Christ's return. This was an indisputable hope for the early Christians. And we are just 2,000 years closer to his return than they were. We're just two days closer. Right? And it was imminent in their time, just as it is imminent in ours. And so God's patience with us is yet again an example of his love for us and his desire that all should reach repentance. God is waiting to fulfill his promise so that all people will have time to repent. But this leads to the question, 
If God wants, to be, wants all to be saved, then won't all be saved? If God wants everyone to be saved, then won't all be saved? No, the answer is no. Because this desire of God's is not as strong as some of his other desires. For example, we, des- we know that God desires that everyone have enough freedom to believe or disbelieve the gospel. He desires this more strongly than he desires that everyone be saved. Otherwise, everyone would end up believing in Christ. But that will not happen. And somehow it will result in God's greater glory for some to perish than for all to be saved. I don't know how that works, but God does. Nevertheless, God's in city desires that every person come to salvation. That is his heart for us. But similarly, God also desires that everyone be holy, but not everyone will be holy. It is more important to God, therefore, that we be free moral agents and freely and willingly make the choice to accept or reject His grace. It's more important for us to have the choice, I think, than for everyone to accept it without the ability to make that choice. See, God is so sovereign and in control that His ultimate will still is accomplished even though He gives us the ability to make choices. Our freedom is real but limited. We can choose some things but not others. Like we can't choose to fly like birds, but we can choose to make an aeroplane. In verse 10, Peter then talks about the day of the Lord. This will begin when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel and it will conclude with the burning up of the present heavens and the earth. And this day will come like a thief in that its beginning will take everyone by surprise, even believers. And so with Christ's return in mind, how are we to live? We should be living effectively in view of the Lord's return. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, Peter believed that an understanding of the future should motivate believers to live a holy life now. His question is rhetorical, is designed to produce an effect and to make a statement rather than elicit an, an answer as such. You know, when he speaks of holy conduct, he's referring to behaviour that is separate from sin and set apart from the world in order to please God. Godliness is God-likeness. And so we should be fervent in our prayers. Both the kind that say, Come, Lord Jesus, may that day of His return be imminent. And even more in our prayers for the repentance and salvation of those yet to come to faith in Jesus. Because as more people are saved, God's patience is no longer required for them. And so His coming may indeed be hastened as more people take hold of the hope of the gospel. As Christians, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, not the destruction of the present heavens and earth, 
And the reason is that the new heavens and earth will be where righteousness dwells. Unrighteousness, it, well, it characterizes the present world, but righteousness is what characterizes our eternity. And it's important for us to remember that purpose of studying, that, that when we are studying future times and end times, the reason is to make us better Christians now. The more we know about what's going to have, happen in the future should really motivate us to live more godly lives now. Warren Wearsby said, the purpose of prophetic truth is not speculation, but motivation. I like that. Eschatology, the study of end times, is there to motivate us to be better Christians now. And so the right response of us as Christians to this letter from Peter, as he reminds us of Christ's return, is to be diligent and attentive. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter urges diligent action. He wanted us to be at peace with God. And the implication is that he expected his readers to be alive when the Lord came. Charles Spurgeon once said, Brethren, we are not here to play away our time, but to win souls for Jesus and eternal bliss. That's what it means to be alive in Christ. Now, false teachers were blots and blemishes, by contrast, as believers, we should be spotless, without defect or defilement and blameless, without justifiable cause for reproach, without offence. And we should view the Lord's delay in returning as a manifestation of His enduring patience that leads people to repentance and salvation rather than as an indication that He is never coming. While God is waiting, He is both giving time for unbelievers to be saved and for us as believers to be working out our salvation in terms of our progress in sanctification, in becoming more like Jesus. But I've never been good with waiting. Have you? I don't like waiting. I just want whatever's coming to happen now. And I'm sure I'm not alone. You know, it's always been difficult for, for God's people to wait for Him to do what He has promised to do. I mean, we can go back to the Old Testament and we look at the Israelites who were camped in the wilderness. They could not wait for God to finish giving Moses the law on Mount Sinai. So they built a golden calf. Humanity, we are not good at waiting. It's important that we do not get distracted from the main thing while we wait for Christ's return. And I love that Peter also says in verse 16 that some of what Paul writes is hard to understand. 
I think that's really cool. We're not alone. He probably had opportunity to read all of Paul's 13 letters. And Peter not only holds them in the same regard as the Old Testament in regard to their authority, but Peter himself has also written a few things that take some effort to understand as well. But just because they're hard work to get their proper meaning, to understand them well, it isn't an excuse for not doing the work. We need to do the work even more on those passages so that we are not led astray by false teachers who twist those bits because they are difficult to understand. We should be wary of those who cherry-pick different scriptures to support their views rather than letting scripture in context inform our views first. Peter's conclusion to his letter is a summary of what he said and a doxology. He did so in order to condense his teachers so, so to condense his teaching so that his readers and us might direct our lives to glorifying God one final time. You know, the twin themes of guarding the faith and growing are woven together throughout the epistle and they're highlighted at its conclusion. Empowered and transformed by grace. You know, four times in this chapter, Peter addresses his readers as beloved. And in each instance, he gives a challenge. He told them to remember, to be informed, to be diligent, and to be on their guard. Those are some pretty good reminders, aren't they? And then that final positive ex exhortation he includes in verse 18 you know, rather than being swept away by error, we should keep on growing in God's grace by consciously depending on God's resources, on His power and His promises, and by growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, by getting more intimately acquainted with Him day by day. You know, Wearsby said, we grow best in a loving family, and this is where the local church comes in. A baby needs a family for protection, provision and affection. Tests prove that babies who are raised alone without special love tend to develop physical and emotional problems very early. The church is God's nursery for the care and feeding of Christians, the God-ordained environment that encourages them to grow. That's why church is so important. It is where we are encouraged the most to grow in faith and knowledge of the Bible and in our missional call to reach people with the hope of the gospel. Church is an essential part of being a Christian. It should be a very high priority for each one of us. Coming to church is more valuable than your good sleeping, right? Being at church here on a Sunday morning when you could be at home having a sleep in, the more valuable thing for you and the thing for you that is more good than asleep is to be at church. Coming to church is more important than getting a job done around the house. I could spend many Sunday mornings doing things around my house, but it is better for me and more good for me to be at church. Coming to church. You know, we need to make less excuses. We need to make those excuses a lot harder to find 
because we place a high value on coming together as the church to be encouraged and to fellowship together, to be spurned on in love and good deeds and to grow in grace. And as we grow, as we utilize the means of grace, the things that channel God's grace and to help us, such as reading the Bible and praying and meeting with other believers for fellowship and encouragement and obeying God, God has even told us clearly not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Don't get in the habit of not coming to church. There are few things you could do that are more valuable to your greatest good on a Sunday morning than coming to church. The greatest goal for us as Christians, however, should be to glorify Jesus Christ. Peter's final words focused our attention on the ultimate priority of glorifying Christ until the day of eternity when we will be living on a new earth. You know, Christ's imminent return is a certainty. But until he returns, our task at hand is to bring the hope of the gospel and to continue to grow in grace. That's what it means to be transformed and empowered by grace. May God richly bless us all as we are diligent and attentive to bring God glory and bring the hope of the gospel. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word of Second Peter. Lord, there's a lot, a lot in it. There is so much more than what we've even got a chance to go through today in these, this series. But Lord, I pray that what would not be lost today is, Lord, we should all be holding the Scriptures as our ultimate authority because that's, Lord, where you have revealed your heart to us. That, Lord, is where you have given us such wonderful insight into the truth, into how you've made us, into why you've made us, into the opportunity you've given us to come to faith in you, to have our sins forgiven through repentance. Lord, you have made a way for us. And so in response to that, may we be diligent and attentive until you return. May we be diligent in our sanctification, in coming, becoming more like you each and every day as we immerse ourselves deeply in your word to know you more intimately and may that encourage us and motivate us to bring the hope of the gospel so that lord many people come to a saving faith in you whilst you are patient towards us and give us time to share the truth and the hope that we have in jesus may that be our guiding force and passion lord your glory and bringing hope. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.